Good morning, church. Wow, Steve, you didn't tell me that there seems like there's a lot more people when you stand up here than when you're sitting out there. (laughs) That just increases my nerves a little bit. Thanks, everybody. Um, So anyway, uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, well, actually, most of you probably know me, and you'll know one thing about me is that I'm a dirt guy. And I always say this before I speak because I am agriculture, and to be very honest with you, I don't even really understand dirt very well, but I haven't been to Bible college haven't been to seminary. I love to feed off God's word though. And so I just pray that today's a blessing because of his word and nothing that I would say. So I say that for two different reasons. One, so your expectations are realistic. (laughs) And two, I'm probably, I think I'm going to break a rule here and I don't know that it's a rule because like I said, I haven't been to Bible college or anything. And I I don't think I'm supposed to ask for any kind of audience participation during a sermon, but I'm going to kind of do that to kick it off. And I'm going to do that for a reason because I kind of want to get you in line with why I started studying this in the first place. Before I start, though, before we do into it, I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that this morning is a blessing to you as we feast on your word. And every single word that we have in this book truly is a feast. May it feed us, may it nourish us, and may it encourage us to live for you. I pray that that is the goal this morning in everything that happens, whether it's here or whether it's in a quip hour or even in our fellowship and encouragement with one another, between services. May that happen to you. May you be praised and honored on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So like I said, I'm going to intro this a little bit different. So I used to use a resource called BibleGateway.com. It's, I went to kind of research different verses, different commentaries. It was kind of my source. I don't really go there much anymore. <clears throat> Excuse me. But one of the things I said, I wasn't going to need water. I got to check my water, Steve, because Steve said he was going to put holes in it. So if I used it, it would get all over me. So... <laughs> Um, so BibleGateway.com is something that I use regularly for that. And they had something on there that had the top five favorite verses. I'm not sure whether when they create a profile, they said what their favorite verse was, or it's just the most researched verses. I'm not sure how they came up with the metric, but it was the top five favorite verses. And when I looked at the top five favorite verses, something struck me. So I'm just going to ask for some participation here. So what do you think? And you can just kind of raise your hand and say, it doesn't have to be anything formal. What do you think would fall on the top five favorite verses that people like in the Bible? And, and I'm just going to say, if you're like me, I, don't, I like to ask questions from here, but I don't like to answer them from down there. So the first one's the easiest one. So if you like to say things, but you don't want to maybe get the wrong answer, the first one's the easiest one. After that, they get a little tough. So what would you say the number one top verse was that people love? Man, you guys all got it. Nailed it down. Number one, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that he so should believe in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Number one, and rightfully so. Beautiful verse. Just absolutely beautiful. Okay, now they get tougher. What do you think? Any other thoughts on the top five verses? Matthew 7, 1. Matthew 7.1 is a, is a good guess, but actually it did not fall in the top five. And eventually, I'll kind of say what they are. Genesis 1-1 was number five. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very good. Genesis 1-1. That was number five. You know, what's that? I would have thought that too, Jonah, but actually it didn't make the top five. But good. I know. I know. I was surprised too. I thought John 1-1 would be in there. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. Was you reading the bulletin? Yeah, 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 yeah. Jeremiah 29, 11, 
did make one of the top uh, five verses. And we're going to cover that one this morning because I think it's really important to hold these verses in context. But we'll talk about that in a bit. So good job. Any other thoughts? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that was another one that I thought would probably make it and did not make the top five lists. Romans 8, 28 was number two. Very good. I don't know who said that, but you got it right. Very good. Carrie. No, it did not make it. You're doing good answers, though. These are all answers that I would probably say. I will go ahead and tell you for sake of time what the other ones. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that was number three. When I read this list, something struck out at me. And I could be totally wrong, but something jumped out at me, which is actually what caused me to originally study this because it's, it kind of almost thought that it might be a little bit of a problem. And when I looked at these verses, and here's what jumped out at me, and maybe... It didn't jump out at you, but there's three of these verses that I feel like can be spun wildly out of context and that really my flesh can take those verses and it loves them. It loves the thought of Romans 8, 28, that everything is going to work out for the good of me that I just, my flesh can take that. And boy, that just sounds so good. And And uh, the Jeremiah verse, not only is it going to be good, but I'm going to prosper or in the ESV, it says welfare. And I can just grab a hold of that. I'm like, Ooh, that just sounds so good. And then the the Philippians, the same, uh, the same way. I mean, I can just spin these verses while they had a control. One of the things we've been covering in Sunday school was the original sin of Adam and Eve was that Satan had offered to them that you can be like God. And that's always our bend to, well, at least it's my bend. It's my bend to that I want to get God off the throne just a little bit, and I want to kind of be placed on there. I kind of want to have all these blessings, and therefore, I got this, Lord. I'm, I'm so thankful that you saved me, and now all's good with me. And I kind of move God off the throne, and I think I'm going to look really good there, and I know I'm going to take care of my needs when I'm there, and I could probably take some selfies and probably get a lot of likes from that picture, and I could just run with that in a lot of ways. And so I think that's really dangerous. And so the reason I came up with this verse was just to study the context of those verses. Um, Now, I would never tell you that I would want God off the throne because we just know that's wrong. And I want you to think better of me than what I really am. Um, But that's that's the uh, that's the temptation. So um, I heard a sermon a long time ago that I thought was really excellent. And we're not going to go through it necessarily now. But his main point in the sermon was every person needs to ask themselves maybe daily. Every Christian needs to ask themselves maybe daily. Is God an end or is he a means to an end? And we know the answer to this question, right? This is a Sunday school, really young. Hey, God is an end. He's never a means to my end. But isn't that the struggle? Isn't that the struggle that we can start to say, you know what? I I like to take these verses. Maybe I'm going to take these verses and I'm going to say, well, kind of God becomes an end to my means that everything will work well for me. Or let's just say that we don't take that perspective. We're not, we're not in the realm of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here. It, it is a false gospel, but we, we are in the realms of, we look forward to heaven. So, so in some ways, can God become an end to our means when we die? Well, he shouldn't be. God should be an end in and of himself. And so I can tell you really quickly how I can take these verses and I can start to put him as a means to my end. We go to Romans eight twenty eight. You know, all things are going to work out for my good. And I'm just sure that God defines good the same way I do, right? That God defines good, that all is going to go well. 
the bank account's always going to be okay, the job's always going to be secure, the marriage is going to be strong, all the kids are going to turn out exactly the way I think they should turn out, all the doctor's reports are going to be exactly the way I think the doctor's report should be, all those things, I'm convinced that when God says he's looking out for my good, that it's the same as my definition for good. And I can go to Jeremiah 29, 11, and I can just confirms it. Like the ESV says welfare, but a lot of, a lot of them say prosper. So, he, so uh, thus saith the Lord, and I was, when I get up here, I always forget, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, or plans to prosper, as other versions will say. So God wants my life to prosper. And then you take the Philippians verse, and that's like a childhood dream. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to guess, at least the guys in this room, when you were little kids, how many of us didn't jump from couch to couch with a curtain hang behind us with a great big S on the back of it? And we were saving the world because we could jump over mountains. And, and we had this idea. And now all of a sudden we become a Christian and says, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it kind of feeds that childhood dream of being great and superior. So that's how I can take these verses um, and I can twist them completely out of context to give my flesh what it really wants to have. Some of you, maybe that happened this week, but it's not confession time. You don't have to confess that if you jump from couch to couch thinking you're a superman. Um, um, so anyway, we ask ourselves, is God an end or is he a means? Um, and that's the way that I have taken these verses out of context. And I think that for a lot of a lot of ways, sometimes those become our favorite verses because our flesh likes them so much. Now, maybe not. Is it wrong to have those verses as a favorite verses? Absolutely not. As long as they're in the proper context and we're using them properly, those are great verses to hold on to. But if we take them out of context, I think that's where we get in trouble. Um, so um, the problem is, though, that when we do that, when we take these verses out of context and we start thinking God is an end to our means... Um, or a means to our end. The problem is that what happens when things don't go the way we think they're going to go in reference to these verses? What happens when the miscarriage happens? What happens when the job goes away and the security goes away? What happens when the doctor's report isn't what we thought it would be? And we start to question and we start to have a lot of doubts about where God is or where we are in this picture if we have a wrong perspective of these verses. And there's several ways that we can go with that. One way that we could go with that is we could say, well, God wants good. So if bad things or how I define bad things happen, then that's not of God. That's of Satan. And, and not only is that theologically completely wrong, because you just robbed God of all of his sovereignty, but that's not even comforting to think of it that way. I had one pastor that I was listening to as I was preparing this that said, God's not like Elmer Fudd who keeps having that wascally wabbit come take what he's wanting to do and foil his day. That's a completely wrong way to look at this. And if you looked at it that way, then there would be no security in my future. If I'm relying upon God for my salvation or all things, but yet I know that Satan could foil those plans, that's not a comfort to me at all. So that's a wrong way of looking at it. Or we could look at it like this. Um, you know what? I don't, I don't belong to this earth anyway. My citizenship is in heaven, and I'm going to be there someday glorifying my Savior, and that's what really matters. So what happens here is such a small thing in eternity that ultimately I'm living for another place. And praise the Lord, hallelujah. Did we not just read that? And that's why when Steve had texted me 
this morning about, or not this morning, but earlier in the week about what verse he was going to read for the New Testament. It was perfect because if you read that, and I'm just going to read it again because it's so good. I'm going to have to wear glasses though, sorry. Um, it's so good and falls right and along in here. Um, 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to start reading 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, by whom God's power are being guarded through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. For now, for though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found in result in praise and honor and linear at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we look at that, and that would be a proper perspective to take. That we live for another place. Everything that happens here is really minuscule compared to what's going on in here. Another thing that we could take this as is we could look at Romans 8, 28 and be like, well, it says he works out all things for my good. So even though I'm not going through good things right now, it's eventually going to work out to be all good. But what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't end up being good as we define good? What, what, what if I was standing in, in line in the early 40s in front of Auschwitz as a Jewish person? And my end was when I make it in that building. Well, that doesn't ever end in what we define as good. So there's problems with, with interpreting things that way. Or we could say, and this is proper, and this is what we're going to go to in Jeremiah, my good and God's good might not be the same thing. And I think that there's a trust and a faith in that line that although I see these things as not good, God says they are good, and so I need to trust by faith. It's in the bank. It's good, and I trust in my Savior because of that. I think that's also a very proper way of looking at these trials that come our way. Um, Or what could be worse? So those are things that we could take if things don't go well and we can take them bad. Or let's let's just say it's worse and everything's going well in our life. That all things are kind of working out the way we want it. Is that sometimes not more dangerous? Because then what we can say, because, because we read in Romans 8, 28, that if I love God, so now all of a sudden I'm like, I must really love God because things are working out really well. And that guy over there, he must not love God quite so much because things aren't really going his well, his very well. And now all of a sudden we think I deserve this. That is more dangerous than anything at all. So misinterpreting the scripture is very, very dangerous. Or if things aren't going well and you have that same perception, you could think, oh, it's my fault. God says he works out all things for good and things aren't going good. So it must be my fault. I must not love God. And we live in a heap of guilt as Christians, all because we've misinterpreted what these scriptures really mean. So I think it's really, really important to take all these things um, in context. Okay, so we're going to go in Jeremiah. Um, so you can turn there cause we're going to spend most of our time in Jeremiah in 29. Okay. So first, a couple of hermeneutical rules first. And, and here I'm saying hermeneutical rules. Like I've been to Bible college. <laughs> I told you I have not, but there really is there's one important hermeneutical rule when it comes to these things. And, and that is a verse can never mean 
what it never meant. And I know that seems obvious, but I think sometimes we can do that. So we can take a verse and we can say, well, it meant this then, and now it means this now. Um, That's dangerous. Uh, So we can get in really big trouble by doing that. So we need to look at what a verse means. Now that might apply to each of us in different ways. So we might take the original meaning and that meaning always stays that meaning. And we might apply it. It might apply to our lives in different ways, but the meaning never changes. So we can't go back to the old Testament and say, this is what it means. And we're going to change that meaning to something now. So that's just a hermeneutical rule. A verse can never mean what it never meant. Um, so it's important to uh, understand uh, just that. So we can't ask how it applies to us in different ways. Okay, I'm going to read in Jeremiah verses 1 through 3. And then we'll go a little bit of a historical background of this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and the Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shapan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hekiah, whom the Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, and I'm going to stop right there. Okay, so um, a little bit of background historical of what's going on here. So it says to the exiles that were in Babylon, technically the full exile had not happened yet. So Nebuchadnezzar had not taken over Judah at this particular time. Um, There were two major powers at this particular time. It was Egypt and it was Babylon. And at this particular time, for the most part, Israel had aligned themselves with Babylon, um, just as as an alliance sakes. However, Jeconiah here was a little bit concerned about that because he kind of felt like Babylon was a stronger power than what Egypt was. So he decided, okay, for our own protection, we're going to go ahead and align ourselves with Babylon. Well, we all know Nebuchadnezzar a little bit, right? Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a lot of needs and wants. So one of those things is uh, that Jeconiah had promised that he would give three years of service in Babylon. So he goes to Babylon to give three years of service to Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Israel. Well, what do you think the first thing that that Babylon is going to start doing now that this people is kind of oriented with him? They're going to require taxes and all these things that we love paying too, right? Well, the people back then didn't like paying any of those tributes and taxes. They didn't even like Nebuchadnezzar. Did anyone like Nebuchadnezzar? His own people didn't even like Nebuchadnezzar. So they did not like this idea of paying taxes. So they decided, I'm just not going to pay him. We just won't pay him and we'll see what happens. Well, just like at home, when there's arguments, you have a child that does this and then Another child does something a little more and then a little more and then a little more. So what is Nebuchadnezzar's side? He's going to do about these people that are not paying taxes. Well, he's going to steal them. He's going to take them. He's going to take them into exiles. He's going to turn them into slaves. So that's exactly what he started doing. He started grabbing these people from Israel, hauling them off to Babylon to be the first exiles, even though officially it hadn't been taken over yet. So this letter was written to those exile people that were in Babylon, those first exiles. So we understand some really important things already as we're reading through scripture and that we always want to take things in context. This letter was sent to people of Israel that were exiled in a very particular time. So it was a very specific group of people to a very, in a very specific time frame in history 
under a very specific set of circumstances. So it's a very individualized letter. Well, I don't have to give this news flash to you guys, but we are not those people. We are not in that time frame, and we are not under those circumstances. So we always have to remember that. This is a completely different set of circumstances. And again, I'm not saying that therefore we take this in our Bible and we rip it out because it's not important. Because we're still learning about how God deals with his people. And we're still learning the principles. So even though the promises might not be the case, we're still learning the principles of these things. Now you might say, well, isn't the New Testament that way? The New Testament was written to specific churches and we are not that specific church. But we are a church. And we are dealing with some of those same circumstances that maybe they maybe deal with. So those things are very much more applicable. So we have to be cautious about remembering that this is a very specific set of circumstances. And we know this to be true. We know that not every promise and every um, command in Scripture is specifically for us. Amen. So an example. Gabriel comes to Mary and said, you are with child and you're going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus. Well, if we took that, which was a command to Mary, and we applied it in our lives, what would this church look like now? We'd all be named Jesus, (laughs) which would be good for somebody like me who's a bad with names because I'd always get your name right. (laughs) But but that was a specific command to Mary. So we, even in Old Testament, it's full of different commands. And we know this to be true too. And we're not, it's not necessarily the state today, but in the Old Testament, God made lots of promises to Israel. Like I'm going to bless you with your, your, to Abraham, your generation is going to be as large as the sand of the seashore. I'm going to bless you with land filling with milk and honey. There was a lot of temporal type promises that Jewish people had. We don't necessarily have those same land type promises. We have gobs of promises in the Bible. Uh, promises of fruitfulness and promises of um, just spiritual blessings that we have. So we have those, but every command and every um, blessing or not a command, every command and every, um, every circumstance is not our circumstance. So we need to be cautious. So right off the bat, we learned some important things about this text um, that we are not in that same uh, group of people. Um, okay. Making sure I don't get too far ahead of my notes. Um, it would be out of context then, as we talked about, to take specific examples and promises and commands here and apply them ourselves, just like a verse can't mean something now different than what it meant um, back then. So, um, on to verse 4. For those people that struggle with, is God doing this or is Satan doing this? Uh, We read on to verse four. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And let's just stop right there. So who sent them? God sent them as exiles. And we know that to be the case from other parts of scripture, that they were sent as exiles because of their sin, of, of idolatry. They were specifically worshiping, worshiping idols at this time. And God sent them into exile because of their sins. Now, if we take verse 11 and we haven't got to verse 11, but as we take verse 11, as our flesh can do and think that God wants to prosper me. And yet we look at this and we say, God sent this people to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not a friendly guy. He was a very bloody king. He wanted to take over the whole entire world, and he wasn't even obscure about that fact. 
He was very open about the fact that I want it all. He, he was very cruel. In fact, many times it would say that every morning he would wake up and flip a coin, in a sense, to figure out which person in his prison was he going to sodomize. And he would, he would come up with these really cruel ways of torturing people. I mean, even when you look at Jeconiah, his son Jehoiakim um, actually, a little bit of history, decided that he didn't want to serve Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar got a hold of him and tortured him in a way that I can't even mention from the pulpit. So this was not a friendly king. So we have this, and God says, I'm going to put you in Babylon under a very difficult situation, and you're not going to define it as good. So how then can we go to verse 11 and try to say that God is going to work out everything good as we define good, when these people didn't even necessarily have that? Um, and we'll go on. So, And I think about this, and we're going to go here really quick. Um, Psalm 23. So, and I'm just going to read it really quick. A lot of you guys have it memorized. Um, I think this pictures it really well, what the context is. The Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in path of righteousness for my name's sake. All this looks really good so far. Like we're loving this so far. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not so good. I don't know if I'd find that one really good. Um, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod is my staff. They can, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overfloweth. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we have the beginning part. It talks about laying down in green pastures. And we have the end part. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. But here in the middle, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So he's walking through the valley of shadow of death. So the Lord didn't take him out of the shadow of the valley of death, but he was with him through the valley of the shadow of death. So even though he was in the valley of the shadow of death, he was still lying down in green pastures because the Lord was with him. And he was still having goodness and mercy was following him, even though because God was with him. So that was the comfort that he had and the blessing that he had, even though life wasn't good. And so these exiles are going to have a very similar situation. This is not going to be an easy road. They're not going to like being under the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death, but God is going to go with them. And, and we're going to see that. And I should not have flipped away from, oh, I flipped right back to it. Good. Because then I had to find it again. So God places us right where we are. Um, and if we, if we view it anything different than that, we're robbing of his, of his um, sovereignty. Um, but that's not a popular message. Was it a popular message back then? No. Was Jeremiah, did everyone just love what Jeremiah was having to say? Not at all. Because he wasn't saying what our tickling ears wanted to hear. Our tickling ears wanted to read Psalm 23 and they wanted to skip that middle part. They want all the green pastures thing. What's really interesting, and we'll get there in a little bit, they were doing the same thing back in Jeremiah's day. They were twisting it the same exact way back in Jeremiah's day, and people lost their life for it. Okay, so as I read on, verses 8. Uh, I, I, I'm skipping ahead a little bit on purpose. I'm going to come back and fill in the middle, but I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to verse 8 um, and 9. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Do not let your prophets and your uh, diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Okay, in order to find out what these people were saying, we have to go back a little bit. So let's turn back in your Bible just a little bit to verse 27. Um, and we'll be a little bit in verse 9. But we're going to find out what it was that these diviners and these people that were prophesying prophesy, falsely were prophesying. So I'm going to be in verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 9. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. So first thing that they were saying is, don't sweat it, guys. We're not going into Babylon. You're not going to serve under Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, let's go to 28. I'm going to read 10 through 17, and we're going to get a little more what they were saying. A specific guy was saying, 28, 10 through 17. Then the prophet Hananias, and now we have an individual, one of these prophets that's saying this, took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet. Why were the yoke bars on Jeremiah? They didn't like him, remember? Um, The prophet and broke them. And Hananias spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go and tell Hananiah, thus saith the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made their place, uh, their place bars of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck all these nations of an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. For I have given him even the beasts of the field. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has sent you, has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And that same year, the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. So he was mocking Jeremiah. Jeremiah was saying, this yoke is going to fall upon you. Nebuchadnezzar is going to put it there. And Hananiah comes in with the exact message that our tickling ears wanted to hear, which is what? Don't worry about it. This Nebuchadnezzar, he's a really bad dude. No get. But our Lord, he, he wants to take care of you. He wants you to prosper. He wants to be good for you. So even though he's a bad guy, the Lord's stronger. You don't have to worry about it. It was a lie. And what happened to him? He died. And I know he was much more popular or his message was much more popular than Jeremiah's message ever was. The people loved it, but it was a lie and he lost his life for it. So again, some of the ways that I've heard this verse twisted and used in a wrong context was done the same way back then, and yet people lost their life for it. So it's very, very important um, to, um, to take all these things in context. But think about how popular that message should be. Uh, my wife has a cousin that um, has always had a heart for missions. I mean, he, he, ever since I've known him, maybe more than most people I know, had this heart for missions. He wanted to go into missions really bad. And he, he's never been in full-time, but he did go over in Africa for a period of time. And he came back extremely frustrated. And here's why he came back extremely frustrated. Because when I went there 
And it was actually a fairly conservative mission agency, and I can't tell you the name of it. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you what it was anyway, because I just don't want to throw bad stones at people. But anyway, he came back, and when he went on the field, the people would have these meetings to get these, um, these people in to present the gospel. Well, if you're going to give a meeting in Africa, and you want to be able to report back to your mission agency how well things went, you would love to report 70 people got saved. 30 people got saved. 100 people got saved. That's what you want to say. Well, how did they do that? Well, a lot of people from Africa love the concept of everything going good for them and their life prospering and them having plenty of money. So it almost turned into a health, wealth, and prosperity thing so that they could report back to the mission agency that all was going well. The mission agency, as far as I knew, didn't even know this was going on. So he was put in a very difficult situation. But how sad is that, that that became the popular message, and that's what drove people in, um, was that message of health, wealth, and prosperity. Okay, moving on. Uh, Verse 10. And actually, I'm going to read through 13. For thus saith the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I exile you. So, 70 years. Right? A little bit of clarification. So 70 years actually marks the time when the King Cyrus had made the edict. However, there was a long process in there between the time that he signed that edict and actually people got made back in the land. Actually, if you clock that out, it ends up being closer to 150 years. So it's a long time. And basically what you can say is the people that heard this prophecy didn't actually see it fulfilled in their lifetime. Not, not fully anyway, partially. We'll talk about that a little bit. But not fully. These people would be dead and gone before they saw this fully completed. So, so not only do we take this verse out of context as far as what it means to prosper, but we, but we also, it, doesn't even, it didn't even necessarily apply to those people. It applied to their children and their grandchildren more than it applied to them. So it's, it's interesting that we take it that way. Um, when it's not even necessarily meant for them. And then when you go into uh, Jeremiah verse 11, it says, for, the, no, for I know the plans I have for you. This is not singular you. This is plural you. He's talking about the, all the exiles in general. So he's talking about a group of people, not individual people. We love to take this verse and we love to apply it to our individual sake, not necessarily to a group as a whole. So he's making a promise that's multi-generational and the promise does come true. It's just that they don't see the full, um, the full completion of it. So there's two applications in I hear that I think that are uh, very important. Um, one, God is always sovereign. Everything that happens, we have to remember God is sovereign over that. Whether it's a tornado that wipes out a town, whether it's a hurricane that walks out multiple towns, whether it's our own issues that are going on in life, God is sovereign over all those things. We have to remember that. We cannot forget that Satan doesn't get to do anything that God doesn't let him do. Cross-reference Job. Amen. 
We know that to be there. He can't do anything that God doesn't let him do. And so we rest assured in that protection too. God will always protect a remnant. He will always have a remnant of people that love and trust him. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you and I will be that remnant. God has his fulfillment. We don't know what that looks like. I don't know about for you, but for uh, as a dad, um, and when I have children come to me asking, they, they want to be a Christian, they want to serve the Lord. And that is a joy to my heart, but also my heart kind of, it, it tenses a little bit because I don't want them to think that, oh, if I serve the Lord, all is therefore going to go well. And, and I'm very careful to say, be very careful about the decision. I am so glad that they want to serve the Lord. Don't get me wrong. I am. I'm so thankful for that. But they need to understand the decisions that they're making. Just like you need to consider the cost of a bridge before you build that bridge. Consider the cost of, of your army before you go to war. You need to understand that becoming a Christian means you no longer have control anymore. Amen. That our king and our savior, the one that you just dedicated your life to, has all the control of your life. And, and that's a beautiful thing. You know, it's, it's complete joy to be in that situation in the Lord. So I, I praise the Lord for that situation, but that might cost you your life. Amen. He might send you in a situation or a place that costs you your life. So it's a big decision. I need to think about that. So we don't have that promise of our life um, always. So God will always have a remnant. Um, God's promises will always come to pass, um, even though we might not see them. We, we look forward to the day that Jesus comes back again. We might not see it, but it's going to happen. So um, he will always come to pass. Um, even if we don't necessarily see it, we can trust in his promises. Okay, so interesting things here. And again, I don't want to take this verse out of context, but what if you find yourself in a bloodthirsty nation? Um, we're not going to get into a conversation about this country and where it's going. That's not what this is about. But we know that there are people that right now in countries that have it really hard. They don't know if they're going to live through today. How do we live in that context? Now, again, this is a, a very unique context and you meet part of history. So I don't think we can go here and learn exactly how we would do if we were found ourselves there or God sent us to a nation that, we were, that was that way. But it is really interesting to look at some of this. So um, uh, let me get to where I'm at here. Uh, I'm going to read five and I'm actually just, well, I'll stop here somewhere in the middle. I'm going to go back. That's where I'm going back in the middle. It says, I'm going to go back in one verse, just get, even though we're read. Thus saith the Lord, the host of God of Israel. So all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So interesting things in here that he says, A, when he says build houses and plant vineyards, he's basically saying, you're going to be here a while. In fact, the people hearing this, you're going to be here your whole life. So don't think, uh, don't plant gardens because you're going to leave early. No, <laughs> you're going to be here a while. Build homes, settle in. This is where I got to have you be, even though it will be difficult. The other thing is, have children continue to multiply. Have you ever heard this? My wife and I hear this all the time. Are you sure you really want to have kids? It's awful tough in this country right now. Things are going really bad. Are you sure you want to bring kids in this world? It is a temptation. Like I think about the same thing, but here he says, no, have kids. I'm going to bless them 
Because those are the people that are going to come, come back someday. They're going to be part of my promise that they're going to actually see that you don't actually see. So have kids. Multiply. My wife and I are doing our part, right? I think. <laughs> we're, we're covering that realm. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, have children. Um, and continue to multiply because I'm going to use them in a way um, that I will that, to fulfill my promises. Um, also, pray for the Babylonians. It says here, pray for them. Amen. That's got to be kind of hard, right? When, when you see somebody like that, to pray for them is very difficult, but we need to. And we do on Wednesday nights. We do pray for this country on a regular basis and in and, and all countries. I mean, Afghanistan and all these places where Christians are going through real hard, we pray for those countries. So we need to continue to pray for the people like Nebuchadnezzar, the people for, and countries like Babylon. Pray for them and pray for the welfare of their, because it was interesting in here. He says, um, um, let me read it so I just don't mess it up completely. Um, I can't find it. Help me out. What verse am I? Oh, yeah, there are seven. But seek the welfare of the, fate of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. So although we know that this promise will not be fulfilled in the lifetime of these people, we know that it will be in their grandchildren and children fully fulfilled. But it is partially refilled here. He says, I'm going to hoe and get and prosper you. Other versions use prosper. I'm going to prosper you in this land. When you go to have children, I'm going to bless your womb. So he's going to bless them in that time. But then we go back to the Psalm 23 passage where it talks about um, that he went through the, the, the valley of, of darkness. So, so they're going through the same valley. But yet they're going to be protected through it. So so we see a partial fulfillment and God blessing them here in in Babylon. But ultimately we see that fulfillment in his children and his grandchildren. So this contextual of the context of this verse is really important to remember everything that was going on. And it is very easy for us to take these verses, twist them out of context and use them for our own glory. But ultimately it's not about our own glory. It's about God's glory and whatever he brings us through. He will protect us through it. He's going to send us through. We might go through difficult times. He's always there. He's always there with us. And that's the blessing part, not necessarily him being an end to our means. Okay, I'm going to pray. That's what I have for you this morning. I'm going to pray, and I'll, Steve, I think, is coming back up. Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that you um, fulfill them all. Every single promise penned in this book has come to fruition or will come to fruition. And in the end of the book, we know what happens. You are glorified above all. Every tongue, every nation will worship you. Every tongue, every nation will honor you. And Lord, we glory in that fact that you will be honored. I pray that you would get us out of the way in our own agendas so that we might be all about the glorification of you and the honoring of you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May it be a blessing to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.